Before we get into the episode, I'd like to personally shout out Nazim and Arlie Kidd. Arlie specifically hooked us up with some stellar guests that will be on the show soon. If you'd like to suggest a guest for the show and subsequently get a shout out, fill out the five question Google form in the episode description. It'll just take 60 seconds. Thanks again, Arlie and Nazim. Now, let's get into the episode. You're on a ship crossing the vast, unpredictable ocean. The success of your journey depends heavily on the captain at the helm and the crew maintaining the ship's operations. The captain must be competent, yet cautious, strategic, yet adaptable, keeping the vessel on course amid the surging waves and the changing winds. The crew that the captain surrounds themselves with must be well-coordinated and able to anticipate challenges. The harmony of leadership and governance in this context is essential for the safety and successful outcome of the voyage. The journey is not just about reaching the destination, but also about navigating through difficulties, as well as learning and growing along the way. Now let's shift our attention from the sea to the dynamic, fast-paced world of B2B SaaS. Much like the captain and crew of a ship, a SaaS company must also navigate through the often choppy waters of the tech industry. They must not only steer the company towards its strategic objectives, but also manage the operations and anticipate challenges from changes in technology trends to shifts in customer needs. The harmony of leadership and governance in a SaaS company is key to its survival, its growth, and its ability to deliver value to its customers, as well as innovate when needed. Today, we're privileged to have with us Krista Corls, captain of the Aludo, a tech vessel with a portfolio of brands that help you enable, ideate, create, and share on any device, anywhere. With a track record of successful C-suite ventures at OpenTable, Nextdoor, and the Walt Disney Company, Krista has navigated her ship through fair weather and storms alike. She's mastered the art of leadership and the importance of solid governance structures. She is the one to learn from if you're looking to keep your ship steady and heading towards success in the tumultuous sea of B2B SaaS. In today's episode, we'll dive deep into the world of leadership and governance, exploring how the right leadership styles can positively impact a company's direction. We'll explore how Krista leverages her experience, her curiosity, and her relentless question asking to drive her companies towards success. Strap in as we set sail on this enlightening journey into the heart of effective leadership and governance on the B2B SaaS seas. From Paddle, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. I'm Ben Hillman, and on today's episode, Krista Quarles speaks with Andrew Davies about leadership and governance. They talk about Krista's experience as a Disney executive, the attributes of a successful CFO sales pitch, fostering a culture of innovation while focusing on financial targets, dismantling the divide between leaders and people they manage, and creating systems to encourage the uncorrupted to seek power. After you finish the episode, check out the show notes for a field guide from today's episode. Then, while you're leaving your five-star review of this podcast, tell us what resonated most about Chris's advice. First up, Krista talks about her early experience as a Disney executive. But if it's okay, I'll start off with that just so we can get talking. And I'd love it if you just give me a, a quick pricey of your background and 
moving into this role as a CEO at, at Coral and then Aludo. Yeah, yeah. So I joined Aludo two years ago now, which feels like both a long time and a short time in some ways. But prior to that, I was the CEO at OpenTable. And prior to that, I was at a company called Nextdoor as the chief business officer. And Prior to that, I was at a Walt Disney company where I was building mobile games. And prior to that, I had a long career in Wall Street. So I take the nonlinear path, as it were. Fantastic. So two years at Aludo, but it hasn't always been called that. So you've been through a rebrand over the last year or so. Is that correct? That's correct. We used to be called Corel Corporation, which was a technology company based in Ottawa, Canada. And Corel was really the namesake of Corel Draw, which is a graphics software uh, offering out there in the market. But the reality of the business was that we had grown a lot and we had added new and additional brands and didn't necessarily feel that name was representative of all we did, which is one of the reasons why we moved to Aludo to really, you know, the way I describe it is, you know, we've got workspaces on workflow. On the workspaces side is our parallels business, which many people know it as, you know, being able to run Windows on a Mac, but it's bigger and more than that. You know, we have server and cloud products within that and really enabling remote work to occur. And so we've really leaned into this post-pandemic work life. And then on the other side, we have our applications business. And so things like Corel or Mind Manager and Winzip. Fantastic. Well, I know there's a whole bunch of topics we want to dive into because you know we've got thousands of SaaS, SaaS founders and SaaS leaders who listen to this podcast. And then at Paddle, we've got about 3,000 SaaS customers who are often, you know, a lot of them are one of our big, big verticals is design. And many of the apps that uh, you run would be in the same space or similar spaces or partner spaces to them. So I know there's a whole bunch of topics we're going to be able to cross over here. So let's just dive in. I mean, it would be really interesting to hear, firstly, this bridge you've done, you mentioned a non-linear career. So you've gone from a background in, in banking, I think, and then into being a CFO and now into being a CEO. Can you talk to me a little bit about some of the changes you've experienced, particularly in that, that bridge from CFO into to CEO of a tech company. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I mean, I think only reason I became a CFO in the first place, though, was just you know part of it was just you sort of had to see it to be it. And so I'd seen other people go from my specific career in Wall Street to the CFO job. So it's like, all right, I guess I could do that. So <laughs> I had I'd gone to the CFO of a company called Plato, which was in the burgeoning social gaming space, and it was actually during my time at Disney where they transitioned me from being a divisional CFO to being a general manager. So what that just meant was that you had your own P&L inside of, of the company. And, and it really was like a mini CEO job. And I, you know, I had all of the different functions reporting into me. And I really liked it. I mean, I think that was the biggest thing was I really, you know, enjoyed having purview of the entire organization. At that time, you know, we were a slice of a much, much, much bigger company. And so there were elements of the job of the CEO that I didn't, I wasn't in charge of necessarily, which was defining the culture of Disney. That was very well defined for me. But, and so then when I moved to the CEO job at OpenTable, that element of culture and understanding culture was part of the education process for me. Super interesting. And I did note when I was reading a bit about your background that, yes, so you came in with Playdom into Disney. I think you were CFO of Playdom. Is that correct? That's right. And then and that was a, what a social games developer. Is that right? No, we were. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, it was like it was a crazy time because prior to that, all games were, you know, consumer packaged goods, essentially. So they were a shrink wrap piece of software 
that you sold through a distributor functionally. And, you know, Playdom comes around and as you know, there was a bunch of other companies at the time and we were distributing games online, primarily through Facebook. And so we were the early, early days of, you know, you know, figuring out how to build Facebook's almost ad business to some degree. I mean, I do remember working with the early folks at Facebook trying, you know, understand what our data was and, and putting it over there. But it really was a confluence of games as a service. So cloud, we were cloud native when nobody was cloud native. You know, we were doing free to play. So we had the freemium. So trying to get somebody to use our product and then try to get them to pay for it later. So there were a bunch of countervailing trends that I didn't realize at the time because they kind of multiplied risk. But it was a really interesting time because it was just a lot of new technologies coming together at once in that game construct. And then when you got bought by Disney, you said you, you came into a more of a general manager role at Disney Interactive. And, and your profile says that one of your kind of accomplishments there was taking them profitable. So what was that process of being bought in to Disney, running Disney Interactive, and then going through the process of making that whole division profitable? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think what you realize is that there's a difference in a, you know, being a venture backed company, you know, in, in, in Silicon Valley, which was grow at all costs. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of overlap with what's happened in the last couple of years. And we were, you know, mind you, this was 2009, 2010. So it was a little bit, little bit of time ago. And we were just, you know, on the tail end of the great recession. Um, but, but, you know, I think there was appetite to, and I, and I really give Bob Iger a lot of credit because he had been and continued to, you know, I guess now he's back at Disney. Uh, <laughs> um, but he, he was really leaning into modern ways of media consumption. And we were in many cases, you know, taking up more of the the mind share, the timeshare of people because they were playing more games and he wanted to understand it. And so, you know, really, you know, kind of made that transition. But but you know, I think as a venture backed company where we were to some degree growing at all costs, Disney is a public company and they have to report numbers to investors. And at some point, you know, the profligate ways that we were going about the business needed to be reversed. And so we had to make some really, really tough decisions, honestly, about the business and, you know, restructure and change. And, you know, I see a lot of parallels, honestly, with, you know, what a lot of companies are having to go through today in this current macroeconomic climate. And, and I think it just gets back into like, do you understand the unit economics for your business and are they functioning well? And if yes, great, but most of the companies don't really have that handle and are not necessarily operating in a way that's sustainable. Next, Krista talks about the attributes of a successful CFO sales pitch. And that, that experience, as you said, must be hugely influential on your future career, but also must be hugely beneficial for other founders who are facing into exactly that same shift they're having to make now, not via acquisition, but because the markets have changed. So what, what else are you telling those people you're advising about how they can bring their companies from a growth at all costs mindset into one that's a bit more balanced and sustainable in today's market? First of all, I would just acknowledge that it's difficult. I mean, I, the way I usually characterize it is that these companies have incurred cultural debt, meaning that the one way they knew how to solve a problem was to throw bodies at it. And, or they didn't know how to focus their decision making. So, you know, it was like, well, we have 10 different, you know, market adjacencies we could investigate. Well, let's do them all. <laughs> and now, now they maybe get one. 
or not, you know, and so it's, you better choose wisely. And so I think building the muscle around really, truly, you know, understanding, you know, what are the assumptions going in here? How big is the market? Really putting on more of a, you know, kind of the the business operations mindset to say, you know, because then the reality is, by the way, your assumptions are always going to be wrong. But it is fascinating to me that going through the exercise of it forces a depth of your thinking that you wouldn't have otherwise done. And by virtue of that depth of thinking, you've now seen around more corners than you otherwise would have been able to see around. And so I think forcing the discipline around that is something that organizations need to get going around it. And sometimes the culture is going to smack you in the face and say, well, we don't want to do that. We don't want to solve the problem that way because it's harder, it's different. And that's not how the DNA of the organization has been designed. And as a leader, now you're confronted with the, oh gosh, you know, the, I've got to shift this culture. How do I do that? Super interesting. And one topic that's come up time and time again with our audience of growth stage SaaS founders is this idea that everybody is now selling to the CFO. Whatever their previous buying persona was, they've now got to convince the CFO before they can get their software sold. So how are you thinking about that at your business? And how you, would you advise founders and heads of sales and heads of marketing that have got to now target a CFO persona to get the job done? Yeah, it's, I mean, you're right that I think the CFO has become the ultimate gatekeeper on a lot of these purchases and, you know, no longer. I mean, it used to be uh, it's tough to sell to the CFO because, you know, they're going to have so much scrutiny around it. I, and I think that's a little bit of a misnomer. I think there's, well, there's a major bifurcation you're going to have to understand, which is like, are we here to drive more revenue for the business ultimately? Or are we here to have lower costs for the overall business? And and I think what a CFO wants to hear more than, yes, of course, we want lower costs at some level. But the bigger thing you want to hear is, yeah, we have a mechanism to drive more revenue into the business. And here's how we're going to demonstrate the ROI. So at the end of the day, you know, I think sometimes people kind of look at the finance role and think it's like a bunch of nudge, <laughs> maybe. But I think the the reality is it's about allocation of capital, risk understanding, and if there's good ROI, you know, always say like even in marketing. I mean, you know, I many people don't realize this, you know, but OpenTable was a part of Booking. Booking was the largest advertiser in the world on Google. And, you know, we spent $5 billion a year. And so, you know, and, uh, and it was a very smart financial decision because you could very plainly see the ROI associated with it. And, but, but I think it gets then into the question is like, is your product a vitamin or is it a pain pill, right? I mean, or is it, you know, is it like, is it a nice to have? And if it's a nice to have, you are probably in a your situation because, you know, the nice to haves are all getting cut out right now. So maybe let's try and dig into an example here. Now, you don't have to be specific, but can you remember the attributes or characteristics of of the pitch that really ticked your boxes as a CFO? What were the ways that a, a vendor or a supplier managed to really do all of those things? And how did they do that in order to win your custom? I mean, I think, first of all, it starts out with just a genuine desire for partnership, you know, which is you know, you know, like there's the service vendor mentality, but then there's the, you know, we are actually spent the time to understand your business and we understand how this piece of software in this case fits into your business. And moreover, we have a good belief that it's going to drive this X, Y, or Z outcome for the business. And so I think it, it's just a, an understanding of, you know, what are the needs that we ultimately have and how do we become more successful? I mean, I think you know, I'm trying to think of various, you know, very large. I mean, a lot of times it was, 
you know, the things we were spending time on were, you know, like at OpenTable, it was like Snowflake or, you know, so we were one of the early buyers there of that. And, you know, again, it was just, oh, you know, it's kind of, instead of taking 12 hours to run that Tableau query, it's going to take four minutes. Well, geez, that's a, that's a pretty material productivity gain. And so we're going to need to, you know, like, I think that's a, an important thing to maybe think about when we're trying to move faster in the business. I know alongside your, your CEO role, you've got extensive experience on boards. So with this economic climate in 2023, what do you think board members need to be most focused on? And what are you leaning on your board members for? What are people leaning on you for? What, what's the balance of growth versus sustainability? Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Well, I think, first of all, if you're in a situation where you're you know massively unprofitable as a company, you have to understand that you, you know, the money just got a whole lot more expensive over the last year and money is no longer just going to fall from the trees and it's not in as great supply. And so if you're going to require more money in order to, to sustainably run your business, you better be thinking quickly about what that right sizing is. So, you know, can you get yourself at least to break even in a meaningful, you know, a short enough period of time and can the balance sheet support it? Because at the end of the day, the duration of these downturns is the thing that is most uncertain. You know, when we went into COVID, everybody, you know, braced and, you know, buckled up. And then we then proceeded to have the greatest bull market run, certainly in my lifetime. And so they're, they are unpredictable. But I think in this one, if if the duration, you know, I, so it feels to me a lot like .com 1.0. So the NASDAQ was in bear territory for, I think, three years. And you know, I hear a lot of people like, oh, when this eases up in the fall or, you know, when, when things ease up in the remainder of 2023, and I'm like, you better not plan for that or assume that if that happens, fantastic, great, we'll all be in a great position on the other side of it. But I think it's it's being very mindful of the duration. So maintain liquidity, get liquidity, be understanding of where, where your balance sheet ultimately is, but then also go on the offense. There's a lot of companies that are going to be in a defensive Moat, you know, we, our business parallels competes directly with Citrix and VMware. And both of those companies just got taken private by private equity. And so we're looking, I look at it and say, my gosh, a, a swath of blue ocean just op- opened up right in front of us. This is super exciting. We're going to take this opportunity where they're contracting to expand. And so I think it's really important to figure out where you're going to place your bets. You can't place a hundred bets, but you can place a few of them and you better be figuring out where you can be aggressive maybe and and take market share in an environment where people are struggling or, or contracting. And now Krista talks about fostering a culture of innovation while focusing on financial targets. I love that. And so how you mentioned this word culture when you're talking about the journey into Disney. So how have your experiences as a CFO where I assume, you know, although you're in a leadership position, most of the world of finance operations is your gamut. Has, how has that experience shaped your approach to then now leading the company's strategic vision and culture? You know, the reality is it didn't help that much. <laughs> I mean, it maybe it did, but I mean, I, I think, I th- so I'll just kind of give you two sides of the coin, right? So before I was the CEO, as the CFO, I spent all of this time, effort, and energy, you know, convincing the CEO or like presenting information to make the CEO understand. And, you know, I would look at CEOs who would, you know, they'd be over there going, gosh, I just need more time to think. And I was like, what these dilettantes, you know, their time to think and whatnot. And then I got into the role and it's just a different 
Because the, the reality is a company looks at its leader and everything that flows from it. And I probably beat my head against the wall for about a year and a half at Open Table, trying to get a culture that was very afraid to move fast and innovate. And I then became a student of corporate cultures because I was like, what do I need to understand here? And, and there's an anthropology around it where you basically are studying this strange society of people where they have a bunch of rules. None of them are written down, but all of them are known. And they're, you know, there's there's these myths and legends that exist that define how people proceed. Because at the end of the day, every culture is a self-preservation game. And you go into the strange society, you go, how do I, how do I survive here? And as the leader, I realized that I was not the culture. I was the I basically was the steward of it. And so I, you know, the the only tool that I found was just what do you reward and what do you not reward, essentially. And so essentially at OpenTable over time, I had to make it unsafe not to take risk. And that, you know, it was like the people who were trying and failing were getting more resources. They were getting more engineers that promoted. And all these people who were just sitting there, you know, in their box, you know, basically hibernating we're like, what's happening? <laughs> the thing that I used to do that I knew I that was going to make me successful here isn't working anymore, and and I think that's and but being very categorical about the approach and and being conscious of of what you're trying to affect. That's fascinating. So, how do you foster that culture of innovation over the long term within a company whilst also needing to remain focused on the financial targets in front of you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good question because I always tell people, I'm like, well, you can't get to Horizon 3 if you actually don't cross Horizon 1. <laughs> so, you know, but yet your Horizon 3, you know, and the way I usually put it in my head, you know, Horizon 1 is, you know, the next six to 12 months, maybe not even that long. It's probably three to nine months. And it's what are we doing right here, right now? What are the operations of the business? You know, and teams... You know, I always say the CEO should be thinking three plus years out. My team should be thinking, you know, 12 to three years. Their team should be, you know, zero or, you know, you know, six months to 12 months. And then, you know, the, the more on the ground should be thinking next quarter. But my job as the CEO, though, is, you know, if you don't make any of those three plus year bets, you wake up three years from now with nothing. You know, people have made a lot of comments around Twitter and it was like, oh, like, look how great Twitter. I'm like, you don't know the implications of these things for years sometimes. And we won't know how many of these long range bets, like if they if they cut their entire AI, I don't know, but like there's gonna come a point where the investment in that thing. So as a CEO, you've got to make those long range bets. And the other thing I've observed is you better protect those with your body. <laughs> Meaning the organization will want to steal resources out of the things that are not generating profit today. But you can't have 10 of those. You get probably one, maybe two. Uh, in our case, you know, we're we're making a big bet in the cloud where our parallels business and how that is going to interface. And it's not going to pay off in 2023, but I think it's important when I look at, you know, the world according to Citrix and VMware circa 2015, and then the world according to parallels circa 2025. And, and I'm, you know, thinking about where we're headed as an organization and I better have that future vision and plan 
there, but I also acknowledge that the organization wants to, you know, the white blood cells want to come in and get rid of it. <laughs> yep. Let's talk a little bit about that. So Aludo, as far as I can see from the outside, is, you know, it's a portfolio business with a lot of different business units inside of it, all selling under their own brand to their own customers. So you mentioned a little bit about this just before we started recording, but can you talk to us a little bit more about the different types of apps and the different types of offerings you have there and why they're all grouped under your company, why they're all grouped under Aludo and the different markets they serve? Yeah. And I think we have a lot, a lot, a lot of different brands. And again, back when I arrived two years ago, one of my primary intentions was to create focus and to really appreciate, well, you know, why should these things be together? I think that was the first question to ask. What unifies these things? And some things may be less unifying than others. So let's make sure we're really clear about where we're putting our focus. We have bifurcated the company into technology and applications, but at its heart, you know, Parallels enables you to work from anywhere. Corel draw and, you know, creates, you know, it helps you to create in your daily life. And these are, you know, oftentimes this is not a casual creator. Uh, this is somebody who does it for their job. You know, my manager, you know, helps you ideate, you know, as soon as you're thinking through business problems, you know, and then wins up and it enables you to share. So we talk about, you know, ideate, create and share. And if you think about workflow in knowledge work, would the thing that unifies all of our products at the end of the day is who uses them. So for us, you know, it's really about can we deliver value to a customer for, you know, we're SMB, SME, so we're not big, big, big enterprise. We're sometimes individual knowledge workers swiping a credit card. Sometimes we are small businesses, but we're, you know, we always say, you know, when you work better, you live better. So if we can enable anybody to work more efficiently, that's really the, the centering premise for a company. I can see, you know, through your offering that you obviously have that split of consumer or prosumer and then, you know, business customers, SMB or maybe some mid-market there too. Have you seen a big difference in the health of those customers and what they need from you in this, you know, challenging economic situation? I mean, I think the there's scrutiny everywhere, honestly. And, you know, it's funny, I've wrestled with the word prosumer for a while. (laughs) And I was like, oh, what is that exactly? You know, I think we get, you know, we try to think through our routes to market in very broad terms. And one of the things that I'm, you know, I said this when I was at Disney and I'll say it again here is I hate it. When a company shows you their org chart, meaning our divisions, the way we sell, the way we communicate is, you know, is like, and so, you know, I think we want to enable anybody to buy with us in any way that makes sense for them and, you know, create automation pathways, don't involve humans unless you need to, but also, you know, be there to offer value to these customers. I think there, you know, there's a lot of scrutiny that we're seeing. We also see a lot of geographic difference. We're a very global company. We sell in 80 countries and, you know, we did see a European slowdown, for example, faster than we saw in North America. And and I think it makes sense based on, you know, the Ukraine and Russian war that's going on and oil and can Germany even figure out how to heat itself this winter? You probably experienced a little bit of that being in England, you know? So, I mean, it's really hard in Europe right now. And I think, you know, we've seen that more acutely than, than we have in the States. Next, Krista talks about dismantling the divide between leaders and the people they manage. Yeah, that makes total sense. If we dig into so the ideate, create, and share, you know, 
clearly there's a massive implication on your business and I assume a big growth has come from the COVID lockdowns and the huge shift to, to, to remote. And I know you've talked with great eloquence about this shift to remote and the leadership burden that now is on leaders who are now managing remote teams. Perhaps you can just talk to me a little bit about, you know, yeah, what do you think is still to come? Is that trend continuing? Are you seeing companies go back into the office and, and maybe a couple of the principles about that shift to remote and how leaders can make sense of it? Yeah, so we are a remote first company. And I, if you'd asked me in 2019 whether or not I would lean into something like this, I would be like, absolutely not. And yet I've been, I've completely upended my bias around it. I observe how much time got wasted in what I would characterize as performative acts by employees that didn't necessarily drive anything forward. And, and when you hold people accountable for output versus observing them sitting at their desk or these imperfect sets of inputs, you get you start to realize, oh, so much of work is performative. And if we could, you know, so much of work is getting just to this space and back from this space. But I, I also, you know, say like, you've got to acknowledge the differences of your businesses too. So, you know, I would say we're in the bits business and not the atoms business because we ship software and it's just easier. And if you're building a car or, you know, if you're, you know, creating a medical device, that equation changes quite a bit. But I think it changes the, the leadership paradigm. I mean, I, I heard this really interesting stat from the CEO of LinkedIn who said, you know, the first interesting stat was that 2% of job postings used to be remote. Now it's 14%. But that's not the interesting part. The interesting part is that over half of all applicants on LinkedIn are going to the 14% that are remote. They're punching three and a half times above their weight, these remote jobs. And you kind of go, well, why is that? Is it that every worker out there, you know, I mean, there, there's one, and I hear this sometimes on some of the boards that I sit in, usually, honestly, it's older males. <laughs> and and it's like, well, these are just lazy people who don't want to work. And and it's just not been my experience. I mean, having been at every level of a company, you know, I, I came in wanting to do good work. I came in wanting to drive a business forward. Yes, of course, there's always going to be your outliers. You know, I, I hear about this mythical person who works three jobs. I'm like, that's like the same guy who's married to three women in different states. I'm like, I'm sure it happens. It's just that like six sigma minute. Like, like is, is this really like the regular and what people are doing every day? But on the other side, it forces you as leaders to embed culture. If you just create a transactional relationship with your employees, yeah, they could quit tomorrow and not feel a darn thing. In fact, they just, you know, go into a new Zoom on the next day and, you know, let it go. So our job gets harder in many ways. And so I think this has been an identity crisis for leaders right now because you've had to change what you thought you knew about leadership and really adapt to what the workers are telling you. In a recent article, I think you were writing in Fast Company, you were talking about the divide between leaders or managers and the people being managed, and perhaps there are different perspectives on this. And I think what I was reading there was it was talking about how leadership isn't a product of getting everyone back in the room or in a, whether virtual or physical, it's about dismantling that divide so that people have a new way of working together. Can you talk a bit more about that divide that you saw in the research and what you're doing about it? Yeah, I mean, essentially the divide that we saw was, first of all, the rules for remote work seem to be different for leaders and individual contributors, which I think is quite interesting. So individual contributors are meant to come in and be observed and to honestly just punch a time clock. And, and you know, I have friends at Apple that are now being, you know, quote unquote, forced to go in three days a week 
and they hate it. <laughs> and then they go in and then they sit on a Zoom for eight or nine hours. Is that really effective work? And just because it's somebody decides that that's the way that it needs to be. And, you know, look, the reality is like, you know, I'm not CEO at home. <laughs> and so it's harder for some people in the leadership ranks, whereas you go into the office, you're treated differently. And so we've just seen this divide. So managers love to preside over. But if you think about it, you're a CMO, right? I mean, does somebody create a better marketing plan because somebody's staring over their shoulder the whole time? Or, you know, and how long does it take to create a great marketing plan? Is it five hours, 10 hours, 100 hours? I don't know, but it doesn't, it's to me, the like knowledge work is not peace work. And I think so often when we get into like keystroke monitoring or other things, like what what are the bit? I mean, again, if you're in a business where you've got, you know, like, look, if you're in the legal profession and you've got to go through contracts and documents, there is a certain amount of, you know, I got to just get through the workload. And and I appreciate that there's, but there's a lot of knowledge work that's super creative and it doesn't just happen in a formulaic fashion. And we're trying to create a company. I mean, even our colors of the Ludo were designed around, we have like morning Ludo, which is yellow, and we have midday, which is teal. And then we have nighttime because it's like, the ideas are gonna inspire you at all times of the day. Well, we want our emotionally connected employees who understand the impact that they can have on their job and work when you work best. Now, that, does that, that doesn't mean we're here on a lifestyle thing either. Like I want output, I wanna win. You know, this is all designed around what is, can we set up the conditions for winning in a company more effective? I think it's really interesting that, you know, you talk about this divide that's being broken down so that you can win together between managers and between people who are on their teams. I think it's super interesting that in an equal parallel, you're selling to individuals, not just to their managers. You've got probably individual plans as well as team plans. Are there any other kind of merging of what was previously two silos or two, uh, that divide that you're seeing across the business or across the marketplace? Yeah, I mean, you're addressing right. I mean, we are a driver and a beneficiary of almost the shadow IT <laughs> world, right? Very, you know, I mean, it's, and, and, you know, I think imagine going to, into a company nowadays and they say you must only use a PC, for example. Like you don't get the choice of a Mac or you must like, so we're no longer dictating operating systems. Increasingly company, you know, like individuals were saying like, I need this kind of software to be more productive. Now this gets back into, you know, the divide, maybe back into selling into the CFO. And so, I mean, I, there's whole companies devoted to understanding software that's getting purchased that isn't getting used in a company. So I think wanting to use these things, I mean, so that goes back to our view, which is, you know, we made a big shift from being essentially a perpetual driven company to a subscription driven company because, and I said, look, all sorts of things are gonna change, you know, even how we respond and customer support, because at the end of the day, we will not be successful if we cannot deliver value on a daily basis to you. And that is the mantra I want everybody thinking about. It's not like we sell you something and we're like, woohoo, we sold you it. Now we never have to care or think about you again. Absolutely not. And so pushing the whole organization to think about retention as the number one driver of our business. If you buy the product, you keep coming back and keep buying it. To me, that requires the, you know, the, the sitting on that treadmill and making sure we're delivering value each and every day. And now Krista talks about creating systems to encourage the uncorrupted to seek power. 
It's interesting. You've come back to kind of what is the watchword of many, many uh, SaaS leaders right now, which is retention and <laughs> making sure their cultures, not just their you know processes and their teams are supporting that retention goal. And you know, I know there's a huge number of companies facing increased churn as they go into this market. Are there any specific things that you're doing to make sure that you're getting close to your customers and, and reducing churn in an environment that probably you know means it will go up otherwise? We... Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the I mean, what is the the precursor to churn? It's lack of engagement, and so if you just think about the whole life cycle journey of the customer. You know, you know, they they learn about your product, they think about your product, then they might buy your product, then they gotta onboard your product, and then they gotta engage with your product, and 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 through that whole cycle, there, you know, it's a funnel, right? And so you're you're constantly seeing where are people dropping off on the funnel? Are we, you know, are we not getting engagement? Are people not using, you know, when I was at OpenTable, we had a churn predictor for restaurants and would go in preemptively and make sure that they understood it's around the product. So I think it is about knowing all those metrics so that you can get in front of where your biggest churn dips are going to be. And it really requires, you know, companies to really instrument every aspect of their business to know where these things are falling off and empower your employees to go in and giving them data. I mean, I think the other thing, companies make sure that, you know, they're in tip top shape around and we were not when I first joined, which was data. And, you know, we hired a chief data officer this spring and just really being able to understand and, and making sure that, you know, we were putting as much of our own first party data on it to understand like, what, how can we serve customers better? Because that's really why we exist. Very, very cool. Yep. Data is often the thing that takes more than a couple of quick months to invest in as well, unfortunately. <laughs> But that's just it. It's like, you know, it's like well, don't don't not invest in those things. I mean, I think that's where it's like, is it, it like don't cut the thing that is eventually going to provide you oxygen. Absolutely. Just as we come into land here, I've noticed on LinkedIn you're a bookworm, often out walking your your dog. Uh, I think coconut is it, or listening listening to an yeah, audio book yeah, whilst whilst walking your dog. <laughs> I hope that's important, but they don't count as much. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Give me a few book recommendations, particularly perhaps along some of the themes we've been talking around today, things that our readers or and I should go and have a read of now. One of my favorite books of the last year is to Corruptible by Brian Kloss. What he set out to do in that book, he did his PhD on despots and dictators. <laughs> but what he set out to understand was, does leadership corrupt? And it made the fundamental formational question. And one of the interesting areas that they did confirm was that corrupt Corruptible people seek power more readily than uncorruptibles do. And what we need to do, you know, the, one of my other favorite books is Atomic Habits by James Clear. Yeah. And one of the things he talks about is you don't rise to the level of your goal, you sink to the level of your systems. And, you know, if you think about corruptible and atomic habits, like the system yep. spits out the uncorruptibles in many cases. I feel like I'm an accidental CEO. I didn't go wake up in the morning. I didn't have the lemonade stand at the age of four and was like, you know, I wasn't, you know, when we hear about, you know, Richard Branson, you think like that guy was designed to go build a business. I feel like I was a bit accidental and we need more people who think holistically with empathy. And so how do we create systems and structures to encourage the uncorruptibles to seek power more readily. You know, look at American government. <laughs> you know, it's a disaster right now. Not the British government is great either. Not, I mean, globally, right? I mean, it, yeah, it's kind yeah. of it's about political power is the most, you know, obvious, you know, in terms of just the power associated. Why are people making decisions? I bet if we cornered a lot of these people down to their fundamental values and beliefs, 
they would not associate or do the things that they do. So why do they do these things? So I, I'm, I just think it's super interesting to get into the evolutionary psychology of some of these, you know, seeming decisions. Just recently read, I've got, in fact, I told my team, I said, if you look at my book list right now, you might think something's really wrong with me. Because <laughs> <laughs> all I do, I just finished Bittersweet by Susan Cain, which is super interesting. I'm reading Joe, Becoming Supernatural by Joe yeah. Dispenza. I just read, I got Frankenstein again, because I, I had written, my kid, my son is in, in high school right now, and I had written a thesis in English on Frankenstein, and it was being referenced in all these other ways, and I was like, I don't even remember that book. I better reread that book, and it seems like an uh, maybe appropriate time. So, I, I, yeah, Guns, Germs, and Steel with Jared Diamond. I've got a lot of good ones in there, but... And I'm all over the place, like, you know, from, you know, human psychology, evolutionary psychology. I went down that rabbit hole for a little while to just, you know, overall self-improvement to, you know, just things that are enjoyable or interesting. And, you know, I, I read a book recently on how trees talk to each other. Interesting. <laughs> and and I think all of these things are, are about drawing the far analogy, too. I think it's about, you know, just stay so in your box you're just going to not have the level of creativity that you need to solve problems effectively. Problems are hard and thorny and messy. And so I kind of like to bring from all sorts of different domains ideas around how to get through problem solving. That's cool. And, and I think the, you know, you start off with corruptible then. I think that's super interesting that we are seeing some corrupted leaders where perhaps the boards were not playing the role they should have. The system that was in place perhaps wasn't, you know, in the previous economic environment where growth was at all costs, weren't playing the role that that system and governance should have played. So maybe we'll see some of that rebalance as we uh, as we build more sustainable businesses now. I, but well, and that's, I mean, that's exactly the right solution, which is at the end of the day, you know, we were chatting a little bit about, you know, keystroke monitoring and, you know, seeing the workers. The reality is individual workers never really take a company down. It's the leader who takes yep. the company down and we need to watch our leaders. That's it. Yep. So it is really about creating governance. And, you know, when people believe they're being watched, they behave differently. I always tell my team, I'm like, I assume every, as you know, I, I live my life like every aspect can be played out on the front page of the, you know, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, the, you know, the Guardian, whatever. I live my life as, as if that is going to be the case. I write every email assuming that the, if the world thought, would I be proud of it? And I think there's a an element of thinking about how you govern yourself in addition to then how governance structures that sit around you that lead ultimately to better and more consistent outcomes. You know, you can be a jerk and do, you know, bad things. Eventually people get caught. You know? yeah. And yeah. so, you know, create a system or a structure that is designed to create better outcomes. Yeah, love it. So let's end on one, you know, given the, uh, the the mixed motivations you've just referenced, what's contributed to your success? What's been the motivating factors for you in this super interesting non-linear rise through multiple CEO roles? I think it's just relentless seeking and curiosity. I just, I just want to understand how something works. And so it kind of doesn't matter what the problem is. You know, I, I, and I think about my early career as a research analyst and, and on Wall Street and what I learned to do there was just ask a good question and being completely unafraid about asking that question. So often people are like, well, is that a dumb question? I don't know. Like, and, and I think just, and I, I ask this to my kids, you know, when they come home from school today, I'm like, did you ask a good question today? It's not about knowing all the answers. It's about asking a good question. And I 
am relentless about that. I'm constantly learning, seeking, understanding how do these things put together and then putting, you know, just so I think there's that and, and then study of self. Not everybody can be amazing at everything. So if you understand where you're strong and spiky and where you're weak or where you need, you know, I, one of my favorite reference questions to ask people is, who would make a great number two for this person? And it's not designed to be like, what is this person's weaknesses? Like every, but if you understand, you know, like I know the people around me, my general counsel, she, you know, she dots every eye and cross, I move at a thousand miles an hour. Like, <laughs> but she's like, I know that I've got to surround myself with people who, who tell me time out. You got to pay attention to this. And I know that my weakness is I'm going to go too fast sometimes. And I need people around me who are going to question things differently. And to appreciate that about yourself means that your whole structure can move more effectively forward than you could as you just as an individual. Fantastic, Krista. We'll, we'll, we're coming up against time, so we'll leave it there and the team will cut a really nice outro. That was super. I really appreciate the conversation. You've obviously done this a million times before because it flowed super easily. Well, awesome. It was uh, easy. Lots of great questions, Andrew. It's been lovely to meet you. We interface again, maybe on terra firma. I don't know. You never know. Although I, I feel you like I'm know. able to get the oxytocin drip without it. So who knows? Shout out to Krista for being on the show. Now you have a better understanding of leadership and governance. Today, we talked about Krista's experience as a Disney executive, the attributes of a successful CFO sales pitch, fostering a culture of innovation while focusing on financial targets, dismantling the divide between leaders and the people they manage, and creating systems to encourage the uncorrupted to seek power. Make sure you give Protect the Hustle a five-star review and tell us what lesson from today's episode was your favorite. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from Paddle Studios, dedicated to helping you build better SaaS.